Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. From now to the end of April, we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to journey with the disciples up to the cross on Good Friday, and from there, the Easter narratives of Luke, some of the most beautiful stories in Scripture. We hope you can join us maybe here online on this podcast, or even better in person. We'd, we'd love to meet you. So we hope you'd consider joining with us on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. right here in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can also find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon. God bless. Let's pray once again. Lord, uh, give us uh, soft hearts to receive from you this morning. Attentive ears and uh, ready wills to do uh, your bidding, Lord. I thank you for your word. Thank you for this beautiful gospel of Luke. And Jesus, thank you most of all for your faithfulness to the end. Amen. Um, today is 2424, which is cool. Maybe not as cool as 12, 31, 23, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3. But 24, 24 is kind of cool, right? Uh, which means that Friday was 2, 2, 24. Pretty smart, huh? Which was a very important day. For one, it was my son James' birthday. Um, I'm going to just take this as a pastoral uh, privilege. He's not in this room. If you see him later, would you tell him happy birthday? It'd be awesome if he just got tons of happy birthdays from you. It's also another day. It's a Pennsylvania holiday. It's Groundhog Day. Y'all are smart. Way to go. It's also a Christian holiday. Tutu is Candlemas. Um, Candlemas is actually called candles because most people have observed it with, or it's called Candlemas because people observe it with candles. It's also known, probably because it lands, you know, in the middle of winter when it's just so dark out. It's also known as the day of presentation. And specifically, it commemorates our Lord's presentation uh, in the temple, back in Luke chapter 2, we're told that after the pre- prescribed time of purification, the Holy Family went to the temple there, and uh, Jesus was presented at the temple after these rites of purification. And in the Old Testament, the law of Moses actually mentions following the law of Moses. In the law of Moses, in the book of Leviticus, it's said that 40 days after the birth, they are to be presented in the temple after the 40 days of purification. As an interesting note, once again, 40 days, 40 years, that seems to be a time in the scriptures that commemorates purification. Anyway, early on in the church's life, they figured that that was likely February 2nd, which is 40 days after Christmas. And so it's the day of the presentation. What in the world does that have to do with groundhogs, though? Are you asking that? That is a legitimate question, and I commend you for your astute sort of wondering, right? 
Well, okay, it's actually a very interesting history, and you can read about this online, but a friend of mine, Tim LaCroix, who's preached here, he was the one that pointed out to me, or taught me this. He actually teaches, taught church history for 10 years at Covenant Seminary, where I went. Well, so the day of presentation, as I mentioned, had been uh, observed pretty early on in the life of the church, and as the church sort of went uh, farther north into northern um, countries, particularly into northern Europe, um, it began to be attached with some folklore, uh, particularly in the Germanic uh, parts of Northern Europe. And the folklore said this, that if, uh, if the skies were clear on Candlemas, it was most likely that winter would persist. And actually, you know what? There's some truth in that. Like the high pressure that creates a clearer day often is accompanied by longer, colder days. So like the coldness that we're experiencing even right now actually does likely indicate that there may be a colder time coming. It's kind of interesting. It's not always the case, but it sometimes happens. So in the German lands, uh, weather prediction of all things was associated with the badger, which in German is the dach, like a dachshund, the small dog that kind of semi-resembles that. Um, and so they started to associate this weather predicting with the clear skies of Candlemas and the presentation of badgers. And some of those Germans actually immigrated to Canada, where on February 2nd, it's actually not called Groundhog's Day, but anybody? Doc's Day. Doc's Day. And then there were tons of Germans who happened to immigrate to the great state, sorry, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where we don't really have badgers, but you know what we have a lot of? Like an absurd amount of? Groundhogs, okay? And um, in case you're wondering, uh, he, did see his sh uh, he did not see his shadow this year. Uh, and I think we should all just say, amen, let it be. Um, okay. But this day was often uh, originally in the church uh, when we celebrated the presentation of our Lord because it happened 40 days after his birth or the celebration of his birth at the least. And that was the day, I want, I want you to recall back to that event, okay? It's given for us in Luke chapter 2, so early, you know, 20 chapters earlier than our text. And in that, we have, um, we have two characters that are mentioned for us. One is Simeon, often during uh, Advent um, and Christmas time, we sing the song of Simeon, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples. So we have Simeon, and then we also have Anna who's mentioned. Anna, the prophetess who was old, advanced in years, a widow, and she spent her days around the temple there, and, and she shared this good news of Jesus at the end of that passage with all those who would listen. Now, the day of presentation. What do we learn just, just from what I just said right there? What do we learn about on the day of presentation? Two big ideas. We learn the humanity of our Lord. Humanity of our Lord. And also we learn the long waiting of God's people. The long waiting for redemption. Okay? And actually, I don't think this is much of a stretch, but this is part of what we're also learning here in Gethsemane, on the Mount of Olives in Luke chapter 22. So, keeping your Bibles open there, Luke chapter 22, verse 39 to 46. Let's start with the disciples, okay? 
Why I want us to start there is actually because um, Luke frames this event with Jesus' command to his disciples. First, verse 39 tells us this, and, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And uh, this wasn't uncommon for Jesus to retreat. Uh, actually, we see this quite a lot. Um, he would oftentimes go to a place of solitude, even in Matthew chapter 4 when he is led into the wilderness. Um, by, by the very Holy Spirit, it says the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness where he was tempted there. Um, so Jesus retreats. Uh, we know actually from Luke that as soon as he gave his, uh, as soon after he gave his first sermon in the synagogue there in Nazareth, he retreated to the wilderness to pray and to be with the Lord. Um, we know in Luke chapter 9, after feeding the 5,000, he then retreated to a solitary place, but also invited his disciples to go with him. This is a pattern for our Lord, and it seems to be connected both to exhaustion and at least at, in one place, it's, it's connected to the idea of temptation. But anyway, um, the disciples have this uh, command that the Lord gives them both at the beginning of our passage and then at the end. Let me read these for you. Verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. If you look down at the, at the bottom part of our passage here this morning, verse 46, it says this. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And some of you are likely thinking, because you know the story, they are sleeping because it is the middle of the night and because they just spent a lot of time together having their last meal, which would have been a large meal in the upper room, and they most likely drank many glasses of wine, and they are now in a quiet place, and they are praying. And you know that all that mixes together to make a very great recipe for sleep. Um, I was struck, actually, even in the moment that we had of silence, how easily my mind wanders from prayer and attentiveness to God in that short, short moment that we had together. Um, but a few things to note. Okay, one, this is actually pretty interesting. I didn't, I didn't really, I mean, I guess I had a sense of this, but I didn't know this until I was studying for this passage, that it would have been, uh, very, it would have been the norm for uh, a Jew at the time to stay up very late on Passover. It, would have, it was the cult, cultural expectation that on Passover after this meal, you stayed up very late, partly because you were dialoguing about what God had done. If you were a faithful Jew, you were talking about it. It was sort of the expectation that you stayed up late and everybody did it. It was sort of like a big party, but centered around this great story of what God had done in redeeming his people out from slavery. And so in some ways, it, it would be like um, asking somebody to stay up late on New Year's Eve for us. You're like, well, I'm doing it anyway. Of course I'm doing that what you do. Uh, the second thing that's worth noting is that um, they had just over dinner heard Jesus tell them that one of them would betray him. And they're all together, and, they're, and we know that Judas actually left you know, during, during the meal. And you would think they would all just be looking around going like, well, Jesus told us one of us. There's only 11 of us here. 
And you would think just the, the worry of what's taking place and all that's going on would maybe keep them awake and maybe invite them to pray and to lay it before the Lord and say, God, would you do something? Judas isn't here with us. So it's not, you know. But as interesting as all that is, sleeping is not the main thing that's going on, right? It's related, but it's not the main thing. Temptation is. And that's what he tells them twice. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. This word temptation, uh, it means, uh, it certainly means to be tempted, but it means to be tested, to be put through a trial. And what Jesus is saying is pray that you do not give in to that, that you pass the test, make it through the trial, do not give in. When the hard times come, and he's just literally just told them. Remember last week, he said, you know, now's the time when you do pack your bags. You know, he's like, grab some swords. and like, here, you got them. And he's like, oh my goodness, y'all are not understanding me. Get ready. Get ready. Do not give in. Because he knew, and he was, had told them, yet their trial was to come. And will they stay with him? Will they stay with him? Let me pause there and let's think back to that first presentation day uh, and Simeon and Anna, okay? We don't, we don't really get a, we don't know a lot about Simeon and, and Anna. And actually, we don't know a lot about a lot of the disciples. There's only a few that we actually know a decent amount about. But we don't know a lot about Simeon and Anna, but we do know some about them. Uh, we learn that Simeon was righteous and devout. That's what Luke tells us. But uh, Luke also tells us that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and also that the Holy Spirit was with him. He was waiting for consolation. He was desiring peace. He was able to kind of look out on the world and see how utterly chaotic it is. Not just the Roman-Jewish conflict of his day, but he knew the long unfaithfulness of this people of God who are supposed to spread the blessing of God to the world. He probably knew the chaos of his own relationships and his own heart. He longed for consolation. He longed for peace. And then we learn about Anna. Um, we learn first, it says that she was a prophetess. She, um, she hung out around, around the temple a lot and spoke to people about the word of God. A beautiful thing, but... Oddly enough, actually quite a bit of the text around Anna is devoted to her marital status. It said that uh, there in Luke chapter 2, it tells us that she'd only been married seven years before her husband died. And it tells us that at this time she was 84, which is much longer than the normal life expectancy of the time. But let's just say that, uh, let's just say that Likely like Mary, Jesus' mother, she was married probably in her mid-teens-ish, mid-late teens. That's when most women would be married at that time. Let's say that her husband died when she was 24. She spent 60 years of her life as a widow. And you likely know that in that time, a widow was dependent on the, uh, on the, on the kind graces and generosity of others. Um, Anna had a hard life. Very likely a lonely life. 
um, a life with unbelievable heartache and sadness. Yet there she was waiting for God. What, what I'm saying is Simeon and Anna uh, had all the reasons in the world to give in to the trials and temptations and tests of their faith, right? You think maybe this God is not good. Maybe this long, long waiting for this consolation of Israel just simply is not going to happen. There's, not, there's going to be no fruit born of this. Does God know my deep sorrows and the sadness that has marked my life? So with the disciples, I mean, uh, some of those temptations and trials for the disciples were going to happen right on that night. And Jesus had warned them about them. But no doubt they had all kinds of reasons before then, just like you have. Will they remain faithful to Jesus? I mean, quite literally that night, will they remain faithful with the betrayal of Jesus and the arrest of Jesus? Um, Will they remain faithful when he's put on trial? Or will they remain with Jesus, claiming Jesus as their own when the little servant girl around the hot fire says, hey, weren't you with him? Uh, will you remain with him in prayer, in fellowship? Will you remain with him like Simeon and Anna in the long haul of life? When a spouse dies or when infertility persists, when doubts arise, uh, simply when your faith is mocked, antiquated, what a farce. You're delusional. Will you, will you enter into the temptation as our first parents did long ago in the garden, right? Saw the fruit that it was to be desired. You look at this world and you think, oh, for my taking. You know, the temptation could be, and it's just the beauty of this world, and you think, I just want to have it all now. Um, will you remain with him in prayer? Will you remain with Anna and Simeon in the place of worship, fellowship with God? Will you remain waiting with God? Because here's, here's the truth, right? Is that a lot of people don't. I mean, my guess is that all of us in this room can give a short list at Worse, a long list at best of people who have not. Um, they've given up. Do, do you all know what's referred to as the stages of faith? Some of you this will probably be familiar with. But stage one in the stage of faith, there's typically there's six of them. Stage one is coming to God. Think of conversion, um, giving your life to him. Uh, coming to grips with this God who made you and loves you and, and is for you, and you give your life to God. And in that stage, you have this sense of, of new meaning and maybe new purpose and, and an awareness of the color of life and the, and the grandeur and, and goodness and glory of God. Stage two, which often, you know, these stages kind of do this, but there, there are stages to them. Stage two 
uh, some call the life of discipleship. You're beginning to learn and, and devote yourself to the Word of God and to study and growing and um, belonging to a community of faith and seeing that your, your life exists beyond just you and God and you're getting connected um, to others. And, and then this third stage after this often has to do with, with entering into service, which some people call the productive life. Um, learning sort of how's, how's God made me and where am I supposed to jump in and serve and, and engage with others. My guess is actually, it'd be very helpful for you to ask, where, where are you in those three stages right now? That's a good question. Um, but there's, there's three other stages, and they're typically uh, stages of sort of deeper and greater maturity. But here's what most people say. There's actually been quite a few books written on this idea of these stages. Most people say that you get to stage three, and you are not going to go forward unless you hit the wall and somehow get past it. Now, um, what do I mean by the wall? Well, there's all kinds of things that, that can be walls. Um, walls can be just huge questions of faith. You know, questions that, that arouse such deep doubt in you. It feels like an impasse. Do I keep going or not? Um, the wall can be uh, experiences. Experiences of unbelievable crisis in your life. A tragedy, um, the death of a friend. Um, maybe it's just the long struggle of questions like evil and the existence of God. And you come face to face with that question. And at some point, the wall has to be, I cannot do this. I don't have the right answer for it. The experience is too, too hard, too deep. It cuts too much. And I wonder, is God really present? Where is he? wall can be all kinds of things, but you have, in some ways, you actually have to hit a wall. You almost have to bear a cross, a wall of testing and a wall of temptation. And the fact is that a lot of people actually hit that wall and they don't go through it. And they either actually give up on faith, they deconstruct, or they just kind of revert back to, you know, I'm just going to be in, in, in the, the two part where all I have to do is study and I'll try to find the, all the answers. Or I'll just devote myself to the three part and just get busy, 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 busy and just forget about this thing. What happens then, of course, is actually if, if you just revert, you just remain really shallow in faith. Jesus says, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Because there is going to be a wall, and you are going to be tempted, pray that you make it through. Okay, the disciples. Um, let me continue with this idea for just a moment. Um, so many of us will hit this wall, and we will say, I don't think I buy any of that. Or we will revert to this kind of shallow faith. Um, but coming to the place where you actually don't have all of the answers and you cannot fix it all is actually coming to the place of deep dependence on God. Where you somehow have to say, not my will, but yours be done. I'm laying my life down before you in ultimate faith and ultimate dependence. Um, I mean, taking the apple, right, the proverbial apple, and, and biting it seems really good at the time. 
But what we all know, actually, is the person that grows up to be the most beautiful and the most fruitful is somebody who has long, long learned dependence and trust and faith in their Heavenly Father. Um, okay, so let's look at Jesus, because this is where we see this embodied perfectly. Verse 41, and I'm going to read to verse 44. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. So he brought them to this place of quiet solitude, invited them to pray, and then he actually goes to a greater place of solitude. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Uh, I was thinking about this passage, and, uh, and of course this famous passage from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, was in my mind and mentioned in some of the commentaries I was reading, and it says, he himself was tempted in every way just as we are. And I'm telling you, I've read that a lot of times in my life. And I've also often thought, like, that sounds, that's cool that Jesus was tempted like us, and he can associate with us and all that. Um, you know, he knows our sin and somewhat. But, you know, honestly, I kind of, like, brushed it off a little bit. And I think this passage drove home this temptation um, of Christ like never before for me this week. And partly it was actually just simply because of this. Um, I learned that sweating blood is actually something that people do. I don't know why. I don't think I've ever been told that or ever really looked into that. Um, this biological phenomenon is known as hematidrosis, which literally means blood sweating in Greek. And what happens is actually blood can ooze from your facial pores and around your nails, and of all things, your belly button. Which I almost didn't share because it sounds silly and funny, but it's actually unbelievably tragic. These places, blood can actually sweat from us, ooze out from us. And what I read is actually, often it's just very faint. It's turning red. It's very, very uncommon. But the fact that Jesus has drops of blood is unbelievably profound. Um, it is always associated with excess stress and overwhelming anxiety. Okay, why did Jesus' parents present him uh, to be circumcised on the eighth day and then after this time of purification, these 40 days, uh, present him in the temple? Um, why? It's because he was a real human. Like, he was a real little boy. Uh, God, yes, right? Yes. But human, 100%. Yes. And Jesus knows, Jesus knows on this night when he's praying, when blood is dropping from him, sweating, that his death is before him. And does anyone want to die? No. Does anybody long to be betrayed by their dear friends with a kiss? No. 
Jesus knew that the time of conflict that he had just warned his disciples about was upon them. He knows that one of his closest friends had betrayed him. He knows that his hour has come. He knows that it's at this time that he must commit himself to the will of his Father. This is his hour. And here's the remarkable thing, right? Jesus says this, take this cup from me. What he ultimately knows is that this is the hour where he actually must drink the cup of God. And I hope that you actually heard this in Psalm 75, verse 8, and then again in Jeremiah chapter 25. What is the cup of God in the Old Testament but the cup of God's wrath upon sin? Jesus knows all of these passages from the Old Testament. He knows that actually rebellion against God and not following him, falling into temptation, actually demands the very justice of God and his punishment for rebellion. And Jesus knows that if he's going to go forward as the faithful one to the cross, it is going to mean that he is going to bear the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And he does not do that simply as God, but as fully man. And he is sweating blood in agony, even while an angel is there strengthening him. This is what our Lord does, and he does it for you. This is agony beyond any of us could imagine. This is temptation beyond any of us experience. Jesus, who knew no sin, becomes sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And this is not something that is brushed aside for Jesus as some easy thing, but because he is fully man, he is actually feeling the weight of this to the extent that he is dripping blood. Jesus, though he was tempted just as we are, he never gave into temptation, which is actually the very reason why he can be called the second Adam, who can bring life where there was only death. Giving in brings death. See, right here in this uh, little story on the Sermon on the Mount, right here at Gethsemane, is a picture of the heart of the good news of God for you. I mean, this is it. This little passage right here is the heart of the good news. Jesus does what you cannot do. And though it draws blood from his brow then, and actually we'll see it again later on, he still does it for you. And he keeps doing it for you. And here's what I sort of want to tell you. This is the way through the wall. I mean, really, this is the way through the wall. It's kind of, in some sense, almost a deeper conversion of God for you. Um, I've told you quite a few times in sermons past uh, of some of the walls that I've come across in my life. Um, and I will tell you, some of them I have sought to just ignore. Please don't be there. Um... Sometimes, and I will say this, sometimes I've found some level of answer and solace in some answers. Um, 
Every wall has demanded good friends to be present and counselors and pastors and um, people to walk through it with me. Um, some walls you just don't know what to do with. Um, some experiences have really felt like there is no, I have absolutely no power over this experience. Um, and if you want to know some of those, I can share some of those. Some of them I probably won't be able to share. Um, one of the ones I have shared is this whole idea of evil and the goodness of God that has been a theme in my life, as it's probably been a theme in many of your lives. And the fact is, is that I actually don't have an answer for that. I really don't. But I'm telling you, this is the best answer I know of. This passage, literally right here. Because there is, there is no other religion, there's no other system of thought that gets at what this passage gets at. Which is that the God who actually made all things fully comes to the place of temptation and the weight of sin and the ugliness of the world. And he says, I'm actually going to bear it. I'm going to love you this much. What you can't do, I will do. And I will bring you through it even when you're deserting me. Even when you've fallen into temptation, I am going to love you this much. The extent of God's love. The, the commitment of God's love for his world. The desire he has to meet Simeons who long for the consolation, right? Who desire the peace. The way he is able to actually meet us in our temptations and knows our deepest desires, just like he does for Anna. Jesus knows exactly what you are going through. There is no tear that's lost on him. There's no doubt in your mind that he is not aware of. There is no struggle that he cannot help you through. There's no wall too big for our Lord. Nothing else compares with this. I'm telling you, there is nothing else in the world. There's no other thought system or religion. Nothing else teaches you this. That God and man, fully God, fully man, come together for us in Jesus. And he knows the agony of sin. He knows how heavy its weight is. He knows the struggle of temptation. And he continues to go to the cross to take on Satan's sin and the evil of this world and to bring the consolation of God. I'm going to end with this. Some of you know that one of the greatest movies ever to be made was Groundhog's Day. Amen. If you doubt me, go home and watch it. Phil, the weatherman, not the groundhog. It's interesting that they're given the same name. At the beginning of this, is utterly full of himself. You know, he's just, he just does... I mean, be, before the days start to repeat, he's already just demanding that everybody kind of does... He lives life for himself. Takes for himself. He acts for himself. And he's rude to others, uh, he's demanding of others, he's only concerned with him. 
And you actually continue to see this once the days start to repeat. I mean, initially, he's just trying to figure out, like, what is going on? But as soon as he goes, oh, these are just repeating. I can do whatever I want. And there's even a scene where he just, like, goes behind this, you know, one of these uh, bulletproof vehicles that has all the cash. And he's like, I'll just take that. Um, and then he even does some productive things, right? He learns piano and, he, you know, and then eventually, you know, he falls in love. But he, what, what we are taught from the beginning is that he actually imports that self-importance and that just like it's about me life onto his loves, even onto other people. And what's actually like really, really beautiful about that, that story is that it's not until he's actually able to actually love the other for the sake of the other instead of his own sake that he's freed. Now, frankly, there is a good moral to this story that we could all learn from, right? And that is actually that you are off, I mean, it is better to give than to receive and genuinely to give for the sake of the other, right? Just like our Lord taught us. But there's a temptation in that kind of thing to say, you know, just do it. Make it through the temptation. You know, Jesus is just there like, hey, guys, just keep praying that you won't like fall into the temptation of all this self-centeredness. And just like, you know, it's all about you. But Jesus just doesn't do that. Right? I mean, he's the one that actually goes through the temptation. And it is great. And it is way harder than any of us possibly imagine. And he remains faithful for our sake that he who knew no sin might become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Right? Jesus doesn't just invite you into this life of self-denial and, and faithfulness and loving others, but he says, I'm going to love you even when you're not doing it. My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. I mean, there's a semblance of the gospel in that good, good, good story of Groundhog's Day. But I'm telling you, what we actually desire is the presentation of God, right? Jesus, the human God right there in the temple, and much more the presentation of God as we commemorate it all the time on the cross. What we long for is a God who loves us to that extent. And that is what we get in Jesus. Friends, pray that you do not enter into temptation, but remain faithful to our Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, thank you for your faithfulness and for your great love. Thank you for the agony that you went through there in the garden long ago. Thank you for the cross and the resurrection. God, I pray that you might mature us, whether we are sort of at a stage one or we are hitting wall after wall, Lord. May we walk that path with you and with one another. Would you grow us up that we might be faithful witnesses to the beautiful gospel of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.